Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and another edition of the Yoke with Doke. Tom is back. Quickly, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Bedratty. As I'm recording this, Mrs. Fried Egg and I are both sitting here in our Bedratty pocket tees. These things are the most comfortable t-shirts out there. Uh, They are made with 100% 100% Peruvian cotton. They're extremely soft and they look great. Uh, I, you can wear them out to casual dinner. You can wear them around the house. They they're very provide a lot of variety in in your in the way and you dress and where you can go. So I, I definitely recommend them. We have some up in the pro shop with the fried egg logo right there on the pocket, or you can visit bedratty.com and get them straight from the uh, source. So. Check them out. The, they are the uh, B-Dratty Pocket Tees. They are awesome and a perfect summer item to have. In this episode of the Yoke with Doke, we cover a lot of listener questions. Tom and I kick off starting talking about Stonewall uh, before we get into consulting and kind of Tom's views on the consulting business and where he's going in the future before then we get into an interesting conversation about distance and Kind of how it's changed and how difficult it's become to design for the uh, modern tour pro. So here is Tom Doak. Tom Doak is back, and as usual, he's not holding back. But don't toss the yolk. And the famously candid Doak doesn't pull any punches. How do I make natural looking contour? Hire the biggest fool in the village and tell him to make it flat. First overrated, underrated, rough. Terribly overrated over the years. From uh, Jim Colton, what was it like building a second course for a membership 10 years after the first course at Stonewall? Um... It was a really interesting problem to do something different. Uh, they they had never really contemplated doing thirty six holes originally. You know, they 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 had it took them a long time to get the funds together to to build the original course at Stonewall. I kind of came in late in that process. They they'd been working with Tom Fazio to sign up members originally, um, but. You know, after they got their first course built, all of a sudden they were in a pretty strong financial position. They had no debt. They had a solid small membership. They had bought like 60 acres next to the golf course to stop somebody, stop anyone from developing it. And they started thinking about, well, we have enough land to do something more here. Really what, what, what got the project going was uh, the three founders of Stonewall were very adamant that they wanted it to stay a walking only golf course, but they understood completely. I and mean, they were all older guys. So they were like, okay, most of our members sooner or later are going to get to the point that they feel like they want to get in a cart, at least sometimes when it's hot here in the summer. And, it's you know it was it was always a barrier to signing up memberships. One of the reasons it was so hard for them to sign members up in the first place was that insistence on walking as being, you know, we're never going to have golf carts. Um, you know, it's one thing to say that at a place like Bandon Dunes, you can either go or not go. 
but to like put down a big deposit to be a member there for the rest of your life, you're thinking, eh, how many more years do my knees have before I really wish I could get in a golf cart? And it's a, it is a, a property that's got movement too. Oh, yeah, it's not it's like a, an yeah. easy walk. No, it's, <laughs> it's not quite as hilly as Augusta, but it's a hilly site and you go up and down the hills a few times. So, um, so they, you know, they, they knew there would continue to be that financial pressure on the club because they wanted to keep that golf course walking only. So they started thinking about, you know, maybe we should build a second course where people could take a cart if they wanted to. And that was the impetus for the thing happening. That and the fact they were in the financial position to do it, they really only had to sell about 50 more memberships to pay for the thing because they already owned part of the land anyway. Um, and so we started looking at the property kind of north of the existing golf course and across this little farm road that was there. And most of the property was bought from one farmer, but there were a couple of outlying pieces. We needed some other piece to make it, to give us room for 18 holes. So that was a really different exercise for me trying to figure out, you know, which piece of property do we get to make this better um, before they owned it. It was the only time I've really done that as, you know, like trying to help them decide which piece of land to buy. Um, it's amazing. Like, we don't get that more often, but we don't. Usually they, they have everything, you know, they've got all the land tied up before anybody calls me. Was that, I mean, were there pros and cons? Like, how, how did you... Yeah, and they were, you know, the pros and cons were, were pretty complicated, too. Like, okay, well, this, this land is the closest to the other golf course, and there's a couple of good holes there, but that guy's going to be really hard to deal with. <laughs> and, if we, and even if we buy his land, it's not going to be enough we're also going to have to buy the guy next door and that guy, you know, so whichever deal we do first, the price of the other one's going to double instantly because they know we need it. So it was really, we wound up avoiding those and buying the other piece of land instead because it was only one more piece of land to buy. It was kind of, you know, when you have to assemble land little pieces at a time and, you know, a lot of people when they're buying land for a for a golf course development or any kind of development and they're buying raw farmland. They, you know, they're not telling the farmer what they plan to do with it because the price will go up, (laughs) especially we're going to make a golf course. The price is going to go up. Uh, obviously Stonewall, you know, they already had an existing golf course. So all their neighbors are like, you know, you're not going to farm this. We know what you're doing. (laughs) Um, but, but that was still a big part of the equation. It's like, so which one is the best golf holes, but also which one is, which one, which deal are we going to be able to get done? I imagine that exercise helped you later in your career when you're, when you've talked to developers or people that are looking to do projects. Yeah. Yeah. I never really thought about it from that perspective quite that way. So yeah, I mean, as I get more involved with, with, as I get more involved earlier in the process, yeah, it's good to have that perspective on, you know, what it takes to put together a development that works. Um, so, um, it's a similar kind of ground, but you know, it's still got some big hills within the piece of property and, and it's kind of broken up in an odd way by a road and a couple and a barn and a couple other things. So you, 
you're in little pieces of the pro you don't see the whole thing at once you know you're in like one little section and then you move to another section and then the road obviously breaks it up too um but the original golf course nearly all the view faces east and then the north course the newer course most of the view faces west so it it does you know it feels much more different than you know they're really only half a mile apart but you're not looking at the same stuff so it doesn't feel like you know they don't feel like a carbon copy of each other the really funny thing about it is the north course once i figured you know once i had when i had more control over what pieces of property they owned and the whole routing process instead of coming in late in the game like i did for the first one the course is more walkable <laughs> it's the one you can take a card on but it's actually easier to walk than the original golf course because i was working on that from the beginning instead of kind of you know stuck with it i you know i i'm, I'm not sure i I think that it was probably more inevitable on the original piece of ground that it was going to be hard to walk. I, I don't know if I could have come up with a way more walkable course than they did, but but it's funny that the one that that is you can take a card on is also pretty easy to walk. <laughs> I didn't. I'd never thought about that. But you know, the is. only place the only the only place it's hard to walk is going up over the hill at the third hole. After that, it's not that hard at all. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, there's only when you have to cross the road is the only really one where the green and the T's right, not right next right. to the green. Right. Um, and, and that's not even a very big crossing It's very, very flat crossing. Yes. Too. Very so, flat. um, so the, you know, the one, the, the one different thing about that course is that I, you know, that third hole that I mentioned that you, you hit up over a hill, um, off the T on a short par five, that hole is, directly stole the idea from that is directly stolen from the fourth hall at Royal Melbourne the, on the west course and you know that's one of the few places that I can say that I had spent enough time at Royal Melbourne to understand that that fourth hall made the rest of the routing work well you know he didn't you know Mackenzie probably didn't look at the whole look at the property and say i want to hit up over that hill was not his first thought but the hill was kind of close to the road and a couple of on a couple of sides and it was almost like inevitable that you know you if you you'd have a bunch of short holes if you didn't go over the hill at some point and once he made the decision to go up over the hill once all the other holes fit into the hill really well and I had noticed that about Royal Melbourne at some point when I was when I was getting to know the golf course. So when I saw the same problem at Stonewall, there's this big hill, and if I if I just play holes off the top of the hill to the corner or back to the hill, they're all like 330 yard par fours, and that's not going to be very good. How am I going to get around this? I knew how to get around it because I'd seen that problem somewhere before. It just wasn't a course that I had built. But I thought, okay, that hill, this hill looks even bigger than the one at the at Royal Melbourne. But I think I, th you know, it's 
it's like 45 feet uphill off that tee, I think, 45 or 50. But yeah, I think that's doable. And and then as soon as I as soon as I figured out that hole, all the other ones made total sense. <laughs> How often does something like that happen where you see something and seeing another course like helps you figure out a distinct mm. tough problem like it there's not that many specific examples that i could give you in my own work you know i suspect i do it more often than not but i just it's, it's like not it's always so clear of exactly where that idea is coming from but you know i've seen the same kind of problem before like when i look at a topo map a lot of times you know like i used to give eric or brian or jim a copy of the map of whatever we were working on to see if they could you know just give them a chance to try to route some holes you know maybe they'd find an idea that i didn't think of or not but you know give them a chance to try the routing while i was trying to do it you know not like comparing notes with each other right away it's like you just go work on it for a little while i don't want to know what you're thinking because i don't want it to influence my thoughts but i'll look at it when i'm done and see if there's things i will things that we could use or if you had a really good idea that i didn't come up with um but when i if i would ever do it with them like sitting in the office looking at a map it was funny how you know, Don would like draw a hole into the corner that was a good hole and I'd just be there shaking my head because I already knew there was no way out of the corner. <laughs> you know, that's because I've done it so much more. You know, there are just things that I anticipate. Well, yeah, that's good, but that's not going to work because you're going to get in here and not have a good way out or you're, you know, or you're going to get stuck with two holes that are way too close together or some other problem that is not really going to be solvable. And I just, you know, I see that pretty fast. I'm like, I'm not going there. I, you know, I don't want to fall in love with this hole because it's going to be a problem. And most people, you know, they have to like try to do the whole plan before they figure out that that's their problem. <laughs> yeah. It's like the chain reaction of, of one hole. It, it, everything right. works together. So, so I'm sure the reason I see those dead ends so fast is just because I've just because I've worked on so many routings, but I've also seen so many other golf courses. You know, there's certainly places. One of the best things about that year overseas for me was, you know, in America, most architects, if they get stuck in a corner, they just think, I can fix that with a bulldozer. You know, I'll, I'll make that hole work somehow. I don't know how, but, uh, you know, we can cut 30 feet in the landing area or do whatever the hell we have to do to make it work in the uk they didn't have that power when they built all those golf courses so when they had a really big stark feature they just had to figure out how to deal with it the best they could whether it was you know a longer green to tee walk or a blind shot to get you in position for everything else to work you know, solutions that we would dismiss now, oh, we can just bulldoze it and fix it. But, you know, their solutions are cooler. And just seeing a lot of that really helped me, you know, think that I don't have to, I don't have to bulldoze this to fix it. There is a way around it. Because in the old days, they nearly always figured out a way around it. They had to. 
So you seeing courses in the UK with the the uh, Dreer Award, and then I imagine consulting, spending so much time at so many great golf courses probably helped uh, shape a lot of your oh sure yeah designs. I, you know, some I probably learned a bunch about routing and just not realized how much I have, but um, you know, Garden City, I learned a ton at Garden City about how simple a design could be and have it still, you know, it has evolved and it, it, it's one of the few courses that I consult on that I think the equipment hasn't made it a whole lot easier. The things that it relies on to be hard or still hard. It doesn't matter if you're hitting wedge to the green or four wood that approach shot works because the green is not, was not going to hold the shot very well. You're going to have to land it and let it release some. And whatever club you're doing that with, it's still not easy to do. But you don't you don't have to worry about moving the fairway bunkers into different places. And you don't have to worry about whether the bunker next to the green is too tight or not for, for the club that guys are hitting into it. You know, it was built thinking guys were, you know, members were hitting forwards into a lot of the greens. And, you know, the senior members still do. And it still works for them. And it hasn't gotten super easy for the good players because you cannot stop the ball right where it lands. Yeah. And, and you know, we've talked about it a couple of times is, uh, on this podcast. It's so hard for young architects to get opportunities to route because there's so few courses with them. But, you know, consulting's right. probably that's where it's such a good opportunity for them to like really understand these golf courses and how they were built. Yes. And it's been, you know, it's been super good for all of my associates to hang around those places. I mean, I, you know, I got to see all those courses when I was 20 or 25 years old and I've gotten to go back, even the ones I don't consult, you know, I've, I've been back to Marion tons of times and I've been back to Cypress point tons of times. And, you know, it's almost better that I don't consult there because I don't have to worry about their problems. I could just enjoy them, but I've learned a lot from the golf courses. Um, you know, Brian and Brian and Eric, well, Brian Schneider's different. Brian Schneider worked on five or six of those golf courses for a few months on the grounds crew. So he really learned them from that way. But the other guys, you know, never had a chance to travel that much and spend time at all those great courses. So our consulting business for years was great for them just to get to spend time on at places at that level of quality. It's like, yeah, this is the level of what we're trying to build for our new stuff is the same as all these really great golf courses that we get to hang out and consult on. And, you know, for the consulting stuff, we've always been a popular choice for it because we can actually go in and do the shaping work and you know we're pretty good at mimicking what's there so it's hard to tell that we were there when we're done you know that's you know a lot of the reason those courses were changed and they need somebody like us now is because 30 years ago or 50 years ago when they wanted to make a change the guys doing the work did not care about you know they almost wanted it to be obvious that they did the work <laughs> instead of, you know, well, look at, you know, we're the guys you should hire instead of trying to still make it look like it was the old golf course and nothing had changed that much. Um, you know, that's the reason those places need fixing. And, 
and you you know it's it's not really a creative piece of work usually you know you you know what you're trying to put back it's just it's a construction project it's a good shaping exercise to really get it to look like that it's not easy to do um but it's not it's not the same as building a new 18 hole golf course so i mean the consulting's been great for us but i am trying more and more now to you know pass that on to the next generation hopefully the guys that work for me because they still love to do it and it helps them fill gaps when we're not too busy building new courses but you know i figure i've got maybe 10 or 15 years left that i want to travel and and work and i'd like to focus most of that time on new courses and right now we have the chance to do that there's no guarantee that we still will five or ten years down the road but while we do you know as great as it is to go back to san francisco golf club or mid-ocean you know i've been telling them the same stuff for like 15 or 20 years now (laughs) and and eric or brian or one of my guys has been there for 10 years you know working on it with them so hopefully they're ready for the handoff where they don't need to see me all that much and honestly it'll be just you know it's not like i'm never going to go back to those places i love those places yeah but i would just as soon go back and play golf once every five years and just sort of nod like yeah that's looking pretty good instead of go back every year and explain to the new green chairman why we still don't think it's a good idea to move that tee. <laughs> cause uh, that's, you know, cause that simple conversation, which is a lot of clubs need. I mean, a lot of the clubs that I've consulted on, the thing they need most is somebody in a position of responsibility to tell them the golf course is fine. You don't need to be messing around with it. You know, don't worry about the rankings so much They're, You know, I've been in the middle of the rankings and it's like, if you're, if you're putting a lot of value in that, you're misguided because, <laughs> because the people that are doing them don't know what the hell they're talking about a lot of the time and don't overreact to Adam Scott showing up and hitting driver eight iron on your par five. That's Adam Scott. That's not your membership. You know, I mean, I've, I've said, I don't know how many times I've said to the green chairman of some place, so is your handicap going down? Yeah. <laughs> you know, just because somebody else came in and hit a great shot, you know, how does that affect the membership at all? <laughs> That's how I was at a I was at a course, um, and they were hosting a big event, and and they were telling me about all the new tees they wanted to build for this big event, and I'm like, how many people play back the back tees right now? And they're like, oh, 10 people at the club, right? Like so, you're gonna spend all this money for one week of like a five year thing, like you know, for these back tees. Like I, I get it, I get what you're you're thinking, but like at the same right. time, it doesn't make any sense. No, and and tees are different. You know, I used to like there's a couple of clubs like the Valley Club, which we which we restored pretty much a hundred percent to what Mackenzie and Robert Hunter had built for opening day in 1926 or 28. Um, You know, they wanted to put in three or four back tees. There's always, you know, I mean, obviously it's been 90 years since the golf course was built. People hit it further. You know, why don't we put in some back tees? And, and I just said, you know, this is 
we've restored everything else a hundred percent right. And just to me, adding those three back tees, it it's it's not really changing the golf course enough to make a difference. So why do it for those three holes and only be ninety eight percent correct? I've softened on that a little bit. So they you know, they hired another architect to put the three T's in after after I restored everything else. <laughs> but um I've softened my stance a little bit on that. You know, as long as it's only a T and the members can still play the T's that were always there and you're not moving around the bunkers because you can't move the T, then I think, okay, no harm, no foul. You know, I don't, you know, the same as telling people don't worry about where Adam Scott hits it. I don't care what T Adam Scott plays from. Yeah. You know, build him a tee in the park across the parking lot and let him hit it from back there. That's okay. Just don't screw this up for the members and yeah. where they play every day. That makes sense. Um, so with it, you, you know, you talked about now for a quick word from our sponsor. Today's episode is powered by TD Ameritrade. Whether on the course or in the market, it helps to have a second set of eyes to keep you on your game. That's why TD Ameritrade's Trade Desk is here to gut-check your strategies so you always feel confident teeing up a trade. Visit tdameritrade.com slash fried egg to learn more about what their Trade Desk can do for you. Member SIPC. Now back to Tom Doak. Doing new work and wanting to do new work, and uh, John, Justin Anderson had a good question here. Um, you've done a couple courses where you put challenges and constraints uh, for yourself on the project, a, a reversible course, you're planning to do the par 68 at Sand Valley. Is this to keep work interesting or to push golf in a, in a certain direction? And then follow up question, what are some other challenges that you'd like to try? Obviously, I know you don't want to give away your trade ideas. <laughs> no, there's, not many tra- there's not many trade secrets in this business. Uh, and I've got a few more things I'm thinking of and just looking for the right client in the right place. You know, it has to be the right piece of land to try the idea. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Um, Otherwise, you'll be doing a lot of cutting. So am I I doing it to make it harder on myself, coming up with these concepts of, oh, let's do a reversible course here? No, it's not to make it harder for myself. It's just, am I trying to push golf in a different direction? Sometimes. I mean, the reversible course, no. You know, other than pushing golf in the direction of being more open-minded and, you know, instead of just building another 18-hole championship golf course, you could do something like this. You know, I'm not thinking there's going to be a whole bunch of reversible golf courses, but, you know, it might spur people to try other different things instead of just everybody building, trying to build the same model, which is kind of what happens now. Um, The... The par 68 golf course, yeah, I'm trying. I've always tried to push golf in the direction of not worrying so much about length. Anything we can do to counter the distance race, let's try to do that. And, you know, you and I were talking before we started the podcast about, you know, when I played golf with Ben Crenshaw 30 years ago, I mean, I was a six handicap and he was a great player. But if I hit a Good drive on the screws. Hopefully your listeners know what that means. <laughs> I think they do. <laughs> you know, with a persimmon driver. Um, and Ben didn't hit his best drive of the day. We were only like 20 or 30 yards apart. 
You know, now if I haven't played golf with Brooks Kepka, but if I played golf with Brooks Kepka today, he would dri- outdrive me by 80 or 90 yards. The gap between, you know, because of the equipment, the gap between a pretty good amateur golfer and a tour pro has grown so much, it's almost as big as the gap between me and a good lady player, which is crazy. You know, we, I mean, one of the reasons women's tees have generally not been well designed is because that gap was always so big that it's hard to make you you can't make the shots work out exactly the same for them you know to give them if you were trying to give a 10 handicap woman golfer a seven iron into the green like you are for me she'd have to her drive would have to wind up 30 yards ahead of mine. So her tee would have to be 75 or 100 yards ahead of mine so she could get to that point ahead of me. And then so she's landing in a different piece of the fairway entirely. You know, the either the uh, fairway yeah, bunker is in play for me or it's in play for her, but it's not in play for both of us. If it is in play for both of us, then she's always got a way harder approach shot into the green. You know, you can't equalize that out entirely. And, you know, most architects have always kind of nodded and accepted that, that you're never going to make the course play from the women's for women exactly the same as you're going to make it play for men. But now you can't do that for men and pros because the because the gap is just that big on the other side. And, you know, if the hole works for me, it's a pushover for those guys. And the only way to make it work for you know they they've got to have their own set of tees all the way around and then you've got to decide who the fairway hazards are for because you're not going to get us if if you get us to the same spot watching the US Open this this past weekend Brooks Kepka 195 on the 8th hole at Pebble Beach 8 iron <laughs> Yeah, he did miss the green. He was a little short with it, but you know that's like four iron or four wood for me. Yeah, with a with a much different ball flight, <laughs> and and the types of hazards around the green have to be then so much different. Sure. So you know when I when I started designing courses, I th- like when I built High Point, I thought, okay, if I build like four or five holes on this golf course with an extra back tee that would be something more like a a scratch player or a tour pro would want the hole to be that's that was about all i needed you know i didn't want to do it on every hole but if i could do it like find four or five holes where there was a good place to take it back another 50 yards that would really challenge them that everybody else could play from the other the regular tees and you only needed a few back tees to really make it you know really keep up the challenge overall now like i said you, you pretty much need 18 tees for that and the problem is if you build them then other people are tempted to play them you know you either need like six sets of tees which i hate the look and feel of or i think jack nicholas said the right thing at sabonic you know, if you're going to have 7,400, if you're going to have back tees, 
make them so far back that the, the five handicap doesn't even think of going there and then don't give him another option between that and a reasonable distance for him to play. Then I imagine it's also extremely difficult when you're routing it, like who walks back, who has to walk forward. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you, you know, if you do, if you set it up so you're kind of always walking forward to the back tee, that means most golfers are going to be walking 100 yards to their tee all day. And that really sucks. So you, you try to find places where it's safe to have a tee back and walk back to it. You know, like the, you know, when the, at the old course, when they keep lengthening it out and putting more back tees in, you know, they're like going back into the fairway the last hole. <laughs> Some of them are in pretty dangerous spots, except, except now they've got to the point they're so far back that it's not, you don't worry about hitting your second shot over there. You're way past that on the approach shot. So it's not a factor, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, the old architects talked about building elasticity into a golf course and even, I can't remember who's, I don't think it was in Thomas's book. I can't remember who, who, which one of them described it as, you know, you should even get to the point of thinking about where they would put a back tee in someday. And nowadays you just put them in, you just put all those tees in right away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're not thinking about, okay, what happens in 20 more years when everybody can, when the tour pros can drive at 350, you know, it's almost like when you start building, like you're building and that scenario is, is the regular occurrence when you're, when it opens, you know, like it, it's it, the way it's accelerating at the pace it is. It's like, oh, you know, like nobody's ever going to hit it. And it's like, oh, yeah, now we got three guys that hit it like that. Right. And, you know, and I've said for, I've said for years, I mean, one of the keys to my success as a designer was not worrying about those guys. Yeah. You know, Mike Kaiser does not worry about those guys. You know, he's worried about his customers. Julian Robertson doesn't really worry about those guys. Most of my clients, they're building for a membership or they're building for resort golfers. And they're not building for a tour event. And so they don't, you know, as I said to one of my first clients, you know, if those guys do come and play the course, they're not paying. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you have to pay them. <laughs> yeah. So think about that. Do you want to, do you want to like make this whole process harder? So then you can pay them a lot of money to come and show up the golf course and make it look like we didn't make it hard enough. Yeah. Spend an exorbitant <laughs> amount of money for guys who don't pay to play your golf right. course. That's a crazy thought. Um, but, you know, like we talked about earlier, I have done a couple of courses now where we do have to worry about them because we're, we're building a course that they're going to play a tour event on every year. And I just, you know, I've spent a lot more time looking at where Brooks Kepka and the players of his generation hit the ball now and trying to design for it a little more. But at the same time, you know, I'm not worried about what the winning score is going to be. Yeah. That's the, that's the part that you have to let go. As long as you can let go of that and you just like, okay, let's just make this interesting and exciting for these guys, but they might shoot 25 or 30 under if they get a good week, shrug your shoulders. They're great players. 
That's the thing. It, I, it's driven me nuts with Trinity Forest is the, the winning score. Everybody's griping. It's like the winning score is 23 under. And, like, I do the math of it, and I'm like, well, you know, first and seventh hole are easy to reach par fives. They've got fifth hole, short par four. They've got that really short par three that played, like, under two-and-a-half scoring average in in the first year. And I start to think about it. It's like, oh, it's like a par 68, not par 71. And then right. they got no wind and a bunch of rain both years. So, right. like, then you start to think about it. It's like, well, like, that that's not indicative. But the thing I lo- always look at is, did it allow the best player in the field that week to win? You know, sure. and separate themselves. And, bo- and in both cases, the clearly the best player in the field has has separated and and won by you know a pretty wide margin which it it's not the best for sunday afternoon tv but it definitely identifies who's playing the best mm-hmm. and that's i think that's the only thing you really worry about is that the guys you're trying to reward good golf more than punish bad golf you're trying to reward good golf and guys who are who are hitting the ball well that week and you know you just don't care about the score but you know i remember when when the tpc it's i was i was at the tpc at sawgrass the first year that they had the the tournament players championship on in 1982 it was my spring break from my senior year in college and i went i went to the tournament that week and i just hung around with pete Dye for like three days and i remember you know Everybody thought the golf course was, you know, there's nothing but criticism about how hard the golf course was. And on Thursday, somebody asked Pete, what do you think the winning score will be? And, you know, the greens were much more severe than they are now. And, you know, it, the, the, the non-fairway areas were much rougher than they yeah. are now. You could, you could get yourself into some squirrely lies if you hit it off the fairways there in the start um and pete said well okay there's one par five that's a real three shot hole but the three other par fives they're going for it in two and i think you can reasonably think that two out of three you know they're you know they're gonna they're gonna make four on two out of three of those holes so he said, so to me, par is eight under par, <laughs> you know, two birdies on the par fives. He said, if somebody could play even par all week, but then they're going to get those birdies, somebody will shoot eight under and win. And everybody thought he was nuts. All the players are like, even par, even, you know, one under par will win this thing. Jerry Pate won with an eight under par. There were only about five guys under par that first year because they they were really psyched out about how difficult the golf course yeah. was. They they obviously weren't thinking clearly. I mean, all the players know, yeah, we can get to these par fives. They just they weren't they were too busy worrying about how difficult some of the little features were. And they you know the thing that they didn't the players were all shocked by that golf course because they they loved Harbor Town and they thought that's what Pete would build and. Pete's client was Dean Beeman, and Dean Beeman didn't just want Harbor Town. He wanted something that was going to be dramatic on television and really test those guys. And 
you know, show how great they are. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's a ton of holes at the TPC. If you miss on the wrong side of the green, you know, you just have to hit a perfect flop shot over a bunker with some bite or it rolls into a lake on the other side. And those guys can do that. It's amazing to watch them do that, but they, they really can do that. And you would never see those shots on most golf courses. There's no reason for the, you know, the, they're never in that dire situation where they have to try that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I still like, well, I don't like everything they've done to the golf course now, but, um, I still think it's interesting to see them tested like that every once in a while. But, you know, that's not really what we're trying to do for the Houston Open. You know, for the Houston Open, honestly, the goal is, you know, from from the sponsor's point of view, from Jim Crane's point of view, raising the money for the tournament, he wants it to be like Scottsdale, mm-hmm. a huge social event and a lot of excitement and bringing a lot of young people out and a lot of corporations bringing their clients out and, uh, you know, several like hubs where you can park a bunch of people and watch play on a couple holes at the same time. And I think it's going to be really successful on that front. Yeah. It's, it's a compelling thing with, with golf and like, what, what do you want to see? And like, you talked about with TPC Sawgrass. Rory had a great quote in from last week at the U.S. Open at Pebble, where he was talking about how the setup. He was looking at holes ahead of time, like when he's passing. You know, when you know, you better look at where that pin is, and you got to start to think about trajectory and how you're coming in with the spin and all this stuff. And you're like, God, like that's the thing is like when they get engaged with something that really tests them they know that it, like all of the the all of the senses in their golf mind are all of a sudden activated and they right. had like you never hear Rory talking about the trajectory he's having to hit shots and where he's landing them in order to get them close to a hole unless everything's working in the favor of the setup and and it rarely happens given you know weather and all these other aspects yeah and honestly you know, my impression is that the tour, they don't want it to be that way on the week-to-week tour event. They don't want to stress the players out that much. They don't want them to, you know, honestly, the players the players don't want to show up on Monday and Tuesday and figure out how the bunker sand is different and all the tricky places they might put a whole location or move a tee up to screw with them mentally or or you know the same kinds of things that you see at a u.s open you know week to week that's not what it's about for them they, you know they can they can play a few events a year where they really have to focus from monday to sunday and get it really dialed in but the average run-of-the-mill tour event they don't want to do that every week they the half of them would have metal breakdowns if they had to do that every week. <laughs> do, you, um, do you remember a couple of years, they did the, uh, the Memorial Jacks tournament had a furrowed rakes. Yes, I do. So everybody blamed Jack for that. Right. And, uh, 
just this last year during his press conference, he talked about how that was the tourist experiment. Really? And then they blamed it, you know, basically. That, yeah. They, he was yeah, the Jack scapegoat. Would, and, but, you know, Jack's one of the few people in golf that <laughs> he would take the heat for something like that. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't affect him. I mean, he didn't care if people... You know, I, I, I remember the first time I saw Mirfield Village, I was there when I was just my last year in college. I, I knew a member. He asked me if I wanted to go to the tournament that, that year. So um, I went for a couple of days, and it was the same week I went to Crystal Downs for the first time. I swung through Columbus on the way back and spent a couple of days at the memorial. And when Jack built the greens, the bunkers originally – he had the only reason I know is because I walked in a practice round with with Ben Crenshaw and Jerry Pate, and Jerry Pate kept complaining about the fact that a lot of the greenside bunkers they had the floor of the greenside bunker like tilted toward the green, so you always had like a slightly downhill lie to play the bunker shot out of, and it was like infuriatingly hard for him to get you, you know he was like not used to the the sand was different. But the lie, you know, you were always having a downhill lie in a deep bunker, and it was hard. So, you know, Jack's never been afraid to experiment with trying to make it harder for the short game wizards to get around his golf courses. You know, he <laughs> that, that wasn't necessarily his strength. So, okay, let's make it a little harder on those guys and and reward the the guys who hit great iron shots a little more. Do you think that? I mean. No matter what, is it for architects to completely separate their own personal biases? Like, no, you can't. There's you, no you, way, right? No, because you're you're trying to visualize the shots that will work, and you're not gonna visualize the shots that make you uncomfortable all the time. You know, you're not. You just not. It's human nature. You're not, that's not the way your brain works. You visualize the things that you're comfortable doing. So, you know, the best you can do is, you know, to understand that and be able to step back and say, okay, I got, you know, I got too many holes that are rewarding a fade. I need to, I need to figure out how to make two or three of these green complexes work better the other way around or, you know, bunker a tee shot differently here. So, you're trying to turn the ball the other way. At least back in the days where guys did try to turn the ball left or right. That's, you know, it's so different now. I mean, they just yeah. don't think that way. That's the number one thing that's different about, you know, when I was 23 years old and walking in practice rounds with Crenshaw and Jerry Pate or Seve Ballesteros or you know, Ben pl always played practice rounds with really cool guys. Yeah. <laughs> so I got to see a lot of really great players up close. And none of them ever tried to hit a straight ball. They were, uh, you know, even on the tee shot, they were always trying to do something with it. And, you know, years later to go to Cape Kidnappers and see Adam Scott and and a bunch of young guys play golf for the first time and just see them smash drivers straight as far as they could. It was like, that's to me, that's the biggest change in golf right there. Was, you know, and it's equipment. The ball doesn't spit, you know, the driver face is big. I can rip at it as hard as I can and not miss the sweet spot. And all the equipment's been optimized for the ball to fly straighter. So why would you try to play a fade? Yeah. 
I mean, more so. Why would anybody ever try and play a draw now? Because the fade goes as far as the draw. People right. used to, you know. It's like, and that that hook just keeps going further left when it lands. And fade just sits right down. Um, so width, width is something that's obviously a, a very popular thing in golf. And Jed Sprague wants to know, what are some of your favorite courses with narrower fairways? Good question. You know, again, I mean, my thinking on it has changed a little bit in the last few years. You know, Kepka talks about how he's not really thinking about how wide the fairway is. It's like, you know, most of the players now think in terms of how wide is the playable area, you know, and, you know, mostly they're thinking about where can I absolutely not miss it? Where is it going to cut? Where, where am I going to make double? I have to avoid those spots. And, you know, if that means they're aiming a lot of holes, they will, aim, you know, if there's water on one side, a lot of times their, their aiming point is the left edge of the fairway. If there's water on the right, where 50% of the time they're going to hit, if they hit it left of, the middle of their line, they're in the rough. And if they hit in the right of the middle of their line, they're in the fairway. But they don't care. That's better than being in the lake. You know, so that's so they're aiming where they know they're gonna miss the fairway fifty percent of the time. Percentage wise, that's a lot better than ever hitting it in the lake to the right. So, you know, they've started to make how wide the fairway is not so important. You know, I realized in Houston, you know, we're never going to talk the tour out of having the fairways fairly narrow for the event. So I'm going back to something that Pete Dye told me a long time ago. It's like, you know, as long as the rough is like mode short, the average golfer, you know, would just as soon hit his forward out of rough as off a tight lie in the fairway. So, you know, it's the width of that area. Like how much of the golf course are we going to mow down to an inch or an inch and a half most of the time? And our idea is, you know, the fairways are going to be pretty narrow, but the first cut of rough will be pretty wide most of the year. And then starting in probably the first end of August, first of September, you just start letting that cut of rough grow up. And by the 1st of October, it's some pretty nasty Bermuda rough that, you know, you could get thick liars, you could get flyers, you could get a bunch of different things. And then right after the tournament, it's going to start going dormant anyway. You mow it down. You don't have to worry about it again until next August. So, you know, we're we're thinking, okay, the fairways are narrow here. And a lot of people, people are going to miss it in the rough a lot. But if the rough's playable, that's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um. So back to the question, do I like, what I don't like is courses that feel really tight, like you've got a straight jacket on and you're afraid to hit the tee shot. And obviously that's got more to do with trees than it does with, uh, with fairway and rough, um, you know, places like Olympic club used to be Olympic club and Medina number three used to be like my two poster boys for just like, and the, and and honestly, I, w- I went to play golf in, in Germany a couple of years ago for my book with Angela Moser, my, my associate who's from over there. And 
I said, so as, after we played about four courses, I was like, so is the word for golf course here the same word as forest? <laughs> because, <laughs> because they've built a lot of courses through trees and they're just super narrow. They just, they're some of the narrowest courses I've ever seen. And that's hard, you know, when you're a narrow course that I don't like is a narrow course where you're pitching out sideways when you hit a bad shot. Yeah. And usually that's because of trees. It can also be because of like six inch rough where you just can't advance it down and you have to come out sideways. Um, favorite courses that are narrow? Harbor Town still. I mean, that was designed to make players gear down. And it still works for that. Uh, you know, you just hit the driver straight or put it away and use other clubs off the tee is, is sort of the, that's always been part of the golf course there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and the greens are scaled down to match. They're tiny and you have to hit great iron shots no matter what else you do. Yeah. Um, so, all right. We've been, uh, we've been at it for a little while here. We'll pull, we'll wrap it up and, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. I mean, you got a lot of stuff cooking here. We'll be excited to see all of it progress. Um, you know, it'll be neat seeing Renaissance Club and some of your work on TV here in the next couple of years in yeah. the summer. And I, I hope by the by the time we do this again, those, you know, I get those two new overseas projects behind me, and we actually have some stuff coming up in the states. Hopefully by by the time we do this again, we'll be working in Wisconsin and maybe even California. And yeah. uh, and I won't be flying quite so far between trips. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> you got to make, make the commute a little easier or go, or go full Harry Colt. <laughs> yes. I, I'm actually in negotiations with another on another overseas project. And I, we've been trying from the beginning to say, we'll do it, but only if I can do it in a, in the space of a couple of trips. Otherwise, no, because I just can't keep getting on the plane and flying that far, you know, knowing that I've got a couple other places I have to do it. It's like I can't be making a big overseas trip every month. Yeah, it wears <laughs> on you. It's, it's, uh, travel is, is no joke. So we'll, we'll talk soon, and uh, thanks as always for the time. Thank you, Andy.